We're picking up in Malachi 3, verse 6, and we're, we're going from verse 6 to verse 12. Uh, so you can flip in your Bibles there. I think, I think everyone's been in Malachi, so we've, we're all familiar with kind of what is the context and the structure of Malachi and these disputes between the Lord and his people post-exile. Uh, so I'm, I'll just pass over that and uh, we'll get started with a word of prayer. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you this morning, knowing that you are the one from whom all good gifts come uh, in you. Uh, There is no shadow uh, or variableness or change. We thank you that you are immutable. Uh, You are unchanging. You are the God who is eternal uh, and all-powerful, omniscient, all-wise Uh, Lord, you are glorious in your splendor and majesty, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to behold you, uh, that you would convict us of the the truths set forth in your word this morning, and that we'd be shaped and conformed uh, more and more to the image of Christ, that we might better know him and also serve him and, and be instruments in your hand for the advance of the gospel in our area, and simply to glorify you in our homes and in our families, in the places where you've put us. Uh, We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So why don't we begin by just reading over the the text as a first pass, Malachi 3, verses 6, and then we're going to get to verse 12. I encourage you to read it in your Bible. If, If you don't have a Bible, it will be up on the screen. Would someone volunteer to read the, these first three verses, or three, six to nine? I'll read it. Okay. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say... How have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a cursed curse, for you are robbing me the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil or your vine in the field. It shall not, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Before getting into the dispute itself, uh, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about verse 6. Uh, In verse 6, we read, For I, the Lord, do not change. Now, there's a a fancy theological term to describe that truth. Does anyone know what that word is? Yeah, the immutability of God. And immutability simply means that God does not change. Uh, That He is unchanging in His nature, in his, that's his essence, his attributes, in his purposes, and in his promises. 
Uh, his essential attributes is another way of just the same idea, but just different words. Uh, his essential attributes, his decretive will, his covenant faithfulness, and the truth of his revelation. Uh, that's John Frame. So, as we think about immutability, it's a kind of, I say, dangerous in one sense that it's easy to fall into errors about who God is and what he is like. So, as we consider immutability, God's saying, I do not change. Uh, what are the potential errors that we could fall onto uh, on either side as we think about immutability? Is it possible that we could have a kind of hyper-immutability that we see God through? What, what would that look like, of a, a kind of hyper-immutability that is actually unbiblical? That he's like some sort of stone that never has any sorts of emotions, that he's just sort of un, unmoving and changing without any emotions or... Uh, Personality. Yeah, yeah, that, that God is just kind of this like cosmic rock, as you said, that does not actually engage with his creation. If God, uh, you know, doesn't, like you said, feel anything at all, and the emotions of God, this is something that is a topic of debate and discussion about what that means for God, but the Bible does not present God as the, the consummate stoic, just unaffected by anyone in anything. That's not our God. It, it, he is a God who engages with his creation. He, the Bible clearly presents him as feeling anger, uh, rejoicing, delighting, uh, all of these things. So, on one hand, if we only fixate on these kinds of statements, I do not change, uh, and we ignore all the narrative and, and how God is presented as engaging with his creation, you end up with this, like you said, kind of cosmic rock of, of that's not really a person uh, that engages and responds. On the other side, if we fixate only on the way that, that God condescends to his creation and engages and interacts, then we end up denying immutability on the other side. We end up thinking about a God who is always changing his purposes and plans, uh, one who is really just like us who is on a roller coaster of emotions as he relates to his people. So, on one hand, God is not only immutable, but he's also sovereign and omniscient and eternal. So, God knows everything that can be known, and he has never learned anything at all. God has never discovered some new piece of information that then alters his plans. God has never thought, oh, well, I didn't realize that you know, they were going to be such sinners. If, I, if I'd known that, I wouldn't have gone down and pursued this course of action. I guess I'll just have to roll with the punches and, and pivot from here. You know, that has never happened. God has never had that process of thoughts. His plans are immutable. And that includes even when human beings and creatures violate His revealed will. When God says, do this, and, and people don't do that, God, that is included and subsumed in God's decreed will. So, also, we think about God's word is immutable. Well, what, what does that mean? You know, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. God will never wake up one day and change his mind concerning what he has said or about his promises. Jesus said, the scriptures cannot 
be broken, or until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, And ultimately, the reason that God's purposes and plans and his word never change is because he is unchanging in his attributes, in his essence. He is eternal and always the same. God will never become less loving. But also, God will never become more loving. God will never become more wise. Because in order for him to become something, anything, implies that there was a deficit before, that there was room for growth. But there is no room for growth in God's perfect character. He is all loving, and he always has been. He is all wise. He always has been. And so he cannot become anything. God cannot improve because he is perfect and complete and always has been. And so the the difficult part, as you actually engage with Scripture, is holding together what the Bible clearly affirms about his immutability, like here, I, the Lord, do not change. And then also just trying to do justice to the biblical texts that speak about how God engages with his creation. Uh, So can anybody think of passages where it seems that God is mutable, where it seems like God is changing. Do, can you think of any text off the top of your, your head? Any, uh, usually it's in narratives, yeah. Um, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, when um, he's being asked to find different numbers of righteous people. Yeah, that's a good one. I didn't think about that, but Abraham is interceding, and, and it almost seems like God could, like, well, if you find 50 you know, if you find 40, if you find 30, and God is interacting with Abraham in, in a way that we can understand. God is interacting with him in the context of space and time and the unfolding of events. Uh, and it seems like God is, doesn't really have a plan that, that he is settled, but this is how, again, God's condescending to his creation, engaging with us. Uh, that's not to say that God didn't know the end from the beginning and how it was all going to unravel, but and had ordained it. But yeah, uh, any other text? Flood. The flood? What, what, what about the flood? He was sorry he had made... Yeah. God, it, I think Genesis 6 explicitly says that God was sorry that he had made man because the wickedness on earth was great. Where it almost does seem like, it's like, oh man, I didn't realize that this was going to be such a mess. And now because it is, I'm going to destroy the, the earth through judgment and, and re, restart. And it could seem like if your reading of the text isn't informed by other truths concerning who God is, that he is kind of just uh, progressing moment by moment, changing plans, changing purposes. Uh, anything else? Jonah. Yeah, very, very similar. God relents of the judgment that he had proclaimed. 40 days, judgment's going to come. But you know what? That judgment never came. Because people repented. Anything else? What last one? Oh, Malachi three seven. Return to me, and I will return to you. It's like God's responding to them. It's like if you return, then I will return. It's like it shows him like it makes it seem like his response is based on us. Yeah, yeah. And, and another famous one, and I and I highlight this one because it's very helpful. Is First Samuel fifteen, where God you know explicitly says, "I regret that I made Saul king." 
And so we're like, the Bible clearly teaches that God experiences regret and that he does things that he later on wishes he hadn't done. But that text in particular is so important because we see later on in 1 Samuel 15, where it says, I regret that I've made Saul king. We need to understand that in light of not only the rest of Scripture, but also in light of the rest of that chapter. Because in the very same chapter, Samuel goes on to say, And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And the author obviously put these texts together on purpose. He didn't forget what he had written you know, 10 verses ago, uh, but he puts them together to show that God is not this kind of cosmic rock who, who doesn't feel grief uh, over the sin and rebellion of his creation. And I don't know how to exactly articulate it, but it's something like our experience of regret, the, the grief that God encounters, that experiences, when he's relating to his creation in rebellion against him. But on the other hand, the author makes it very clear that this is not regret. This is not repent or regret in the way that we experience it. He says, just in case you're confused, God is not a man that he should have regret. Now, is all the mystery worked out and all the tension resolved? No, and I don't think God cares that we do have it. The Bible doesn't always seek to remove all of the tension that we experience theologically. But I think the author wants it to be clear that God experiences something in his divine person, something that is like our human experience, and yet this is not, this is categorically not exactly what we are experiencing. I think it's a matter of uh, human language. We have a way of expressing things, what we feel, but we don't understand what, where God's coming from. Mm-hmm. I, I get the impression that, like with Solomon, he knew what was going to happen, and he regretted that it was going to happen. But it wasn't because he changed his mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and so, I I said it right. Yeah, well, you mentioned human language, and so this is what I was going to highlight. So just two, two thoughts concerning these. Uh, is that the Bible uses anthropomorphic language to describe God. So anthropomorphic just meaning man, it describes God in human terms. Uh, Anthro and then pomorphic, or anthropomorphic. (laughs) But in any case, describing God in in the ways that we can think and understand. Uh, And we see this all throughout Scripture, that God has, you know, talking about his strong arms and his eyes that are searching the earth. And similarly, even with emotions like this, God is condescending to his creation. He's lowering himself down so that he can communicate with people with small, finite minds in a way that we can understand. Is it the most accurate and precise? Well, we can't, we can't grasp exactly in the most precise and accurate way who God is, because he's infinite, and he's divine, and we're finite creatures. So, God, like I said, condescends to us, speaking in a way that we can understand. But the other thing uh, that Ben highlighted is that the Lord d- really does respond to his create, uh, creatures that do change. Uh, so, the fact that God is 
changing to changing circumstances, that the Lord's response changes to different circumstances, doesn't mean that His plans or purposes have changed, or that God has realized something and is now changing His course of action. And part of that is just understanding that God hasn't disclosed to us all of His sovereign will. So when God relents from judgment, we we see in Scripture all the time, our conclusion should not be, well, God had really willed and, and like thought he was going to do this thing with the Ninevites, but then he found out that they were repentant, so then he changed his mind. But rather, God willed for the warning of judgment to be the means by which they come to repentance and he brings them to salvation. Uh, that's how we should think about it biblically. So the Lord ordains not only the ends, but also the means by which he brings about those ends. So from a theological, you know, removed third-person perspective, that's how we, we should see the Lord is working and ordaining all of this. On the other hand, looking at it from a first-person perspective, kind of in the moment, we also need to affirm and acknowledge that, you know, if they had not repented, then they would, it would have, in fact, resulted in God's judgment. So we, we want to realize and affirm that God uses means to accomplish his ends. Uh, And we don't want to nullify the means. We need to proclaim the gospel. People need to hear. They need to repent. We need to obey for God's good purposes that he he has willed to come to pass to come to pass. But it's God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Okay, but let's come back to the text and actually try to get into the text here. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. So why does immutability lead to Israel not being consumed? What's the relationship between those two? He made a pledge. God's word never changes. He told Abraham that his descendants would lead to salvation, basically. And despite all their evil and stupid things that they did, he didn't change. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's it rooted in his promise that he had made in his purposes of salvation. God made a covenant with Abraham. He made a covenant with David. And despite all the sin and rebellion of later Israelites and even those Israelites and even Abraham and David, God made a covenant. And God is not going to alter his plans or change his mind simply, or really fail to make good on his promises just because they were were sinful and rebellious. It's not going to deter God from accomplishing his good purposes in creation. Uh, But it's not because of them, but despite them. And that doesn't mean that, of course, all of these individuals that God is speaking with in Israel's history have a right relationship with God or are saved to use our our language, uh, but simply that he is not going to annul his promise to David because of their sin and their rebellion. And and I should note that verse 6 is either the conclusion to the former dispute or it's the introduction to this dispute. The ESV puts it with this dispute, but I notice that NASB puts it with the former dispute. And I would say that it could... I went back and forth. I thought, oh, no, and it does go 
with the previous one. And then I read it again and thought, oh, well, maybe it does go with this one. So it could go either way. But in either case, the Lord is, is saying, I've extended mercy to you, Israel. And, and my pl- plans and purposes continue today. But it's not because of you. Understand this. It's not because of you. It's because of me and my nature and my character. So then as, as we go on in Malachi, what technically is the, the initial charge that God brings against his people? Say Robbie. Yeah, he's going to get there, but that's not the first charge that, that he, like, that's why I'm saying technically, you're right, this, this is the substance of the, the issue, but how, how does he frame it initially? Turn aside from my statutes. Mm-hmm. Set. Yeah, verse 7, he says, From the days of old, your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. So God is saying, you corporately, as a nation, have always been stubborn and defiant. But even today, the offer of mercy is extended to you. And I think we need to appreciate that in the immediate context and just as a general principle, that God does not need to offer repentance. Justice does not require God to say, return to me and I will return to you. God would be completely just in a universal condemnation of Israel. He'd be just in a universal condemnation of all people with no offer of salvation at all, with no offer of return to me, repent, and I'll return to you. That's not incumbent upon God. And you know, He would still be good. He would still be just. There's no gospel for the angels who fell. And I assure you that they're more glorious, they're more majestic in their, their nature and their being than we are as human beings. Because when, whenever human beings see angels, <laughs> we are tempted to fall down and worship them in Scripture. But despite that, God made no offer, He made no door of repentance and reconciliation for fallen angels. Uh, and that impugns neither His justice nor His goodness. But so often, we act like God owes us a way of repentance, that he would be unjust if he did not send Jesus. How dare you not make a way of salvation for me? But God didn't have to do that. Not at all. Or we simply don't even think about it and we take it for granted. Well, of course, of course there's a way of, to return to God. Of course there, there's a door of mercy that I may or may not walk through. Well, there didn't have to be a door of mercy. Consider the cost at which that came of Christ, the eternal Son of God, becoming incarnate, taking on human flesh, going to the cross, bearing the wrath of God. None of that was required of Him. It's all mercy. And and the other thing to remember in connection with this is that our repentance doesn't accomplish anything in and of itself. We could repent all day, every day, for the rest of our lives, but without an atonement for sin, without Jesus making good, Jesus has to make good. That promise can stand because Jesus came. Apart from Christ, all the promises of mercy, all the promises of repentance, return to me and I'll return to you, all of those would be meaningless apart from Christ actually coming and 
providing an atonement, providing the grounds and the basis of our forgiveness. So just appreciate that. You know, even if these Israelites didn't take God up on this offer, even if they rejected him, God is still being immeasurably kind and merciful to them, even in extending his hands to them. But we read on in verse 7. They say, well, but you say, how shall we return? And again, like we talked about last week, uh, in light of both the narrow and the wider context of Malachi, uh, we don't read this charitably for the Israelites. They're not saying, Lord, you know, show me my sin. How shall I return to you? Uh, make known to me the path of life. Uh, this is not them talking with a, a humble, contrite attitude. This is how they're speaking in all of Malachi with a dismissive, self-justifying attitude. How shall we return to you? Uh, and in fact, I would venture to say, in light of the rest of Malachi, they're probably saying, us return to you. You need to return to us. You're the one who's broken your promises. You're the one who hasn't been faithful to us. You're the reason why we're impoverished. You're the reason why our temple is not glorious and uh, we're still subjugated by the Persians. Like, you're the one who's been unfaithful. You need to return and fulfill your promises to us. And it's just, yeah, an ugly attitude. And then the rest of the passage from verse 8 to 9, God establishes his charge against him. What is the actual basic, the, the items, evidence that he's saying, this is how you have forsaken me. This is how you've turned aside from my statutes. And can someone just read verses 8 and 9 again? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how will we rob you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation. Okay, so what is the issue? Yeah, they're not tithing. They're not faithful in their finances. And God characterizes this as stealing from him. Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. They, of course, had tithes that were obligated upon them, or they were obligated to give for the temple and for Levitical priesthood. Uh, And clearly, this is a widespread issue in the culture at the time. The Lord says, the whole nation of you. This is something that was commonplace. Uh, Not one or two or individuals, but by and large, you know, they probably just looked around and said, well, you know, Eliezer, he's he's like the most righteous guy I know, and and he doesn't really give a full tithe. I mean, I doubt the Lord is going to be that serious about this. It's not that big of a deal. But what we see here in verse 9 is that God pronounces a curse upon them for their disobedience. Uh, And then in verses 10 to 12, you'll notice that there's, well, in verse 9, there's a curse for their disobedience. And then verses 10 to 12, there's a promise or a blessing for their obedience, or he promises a blessing for obedience. So let's just read the rest of the passage one more time. Can somebody do read verses 10 to 12 for us, nice and loud? Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that I will not destroy the fruits of your soil. 
and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, good. So what is the simple surface summary of that, that promise? Basically he's saying, test me. You know, give me the tithes and see what I'll do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if, if you'll be faithful in giving... I promise I'm going to be faithful in providing. And not only will he pour out blessing upon them from heaven, but he's going to rebuke the devourer, whether that is locusts or famine in context, whatever it might be that is you know, actively harming their income and their produce. Uh, but this reminds me of Haggai, this mention of the devourer. Haggai is also a post-exilic prophet, uh, but he's a couple generations before Malachi. This is right when the people are, are coming in and they're settling in the land. Uh, this is a time when they're trying to just get their, their feet settled and, and they're trying to build their houses and build up their communities. And all the while, they're neglecting the temple. So, so it's the first generation of Israelites back in the land. They're building their houses, but they're neglecting the temple. Uh, and so in Haggai 1, verses 3 to 6, we read, Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Referring to the temple. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. So because they were not faithful in their priorities, the Lord objectively brought hardship upon them. All their efforts came to naught. Everything just didn't quite work out the way it was supposed to. They sowed much. They harvested little. They're working long hours but they're just still barely making ends meet. In the modern era, when I think of, of this, it's like, you know, you're working long hours, perhaps you have income, but it's like, ah, oh, one day the car breaks down, uh, the next week you get a speeding ticket, uh, the next week, you know, you have a leak in your roof and it's like, oh man, this is like, I just can't hold on to this money. It's just slipping out everywhere. But it's not only in the objective things of, of where their money was coming and going, but then also subjectively how they were experiencing it. There's discontentment. You eat, but you never have enough. You, you drink, but you never have your fill. You're never satisfied in the things that you're trying to acquire and get for yourselves. And, and the truth is, and we all know this, and yet we don't always live like it, but you can have very little and you can feel very rich. Or you can have a lot and you can feel very poor. And we see that contentment is a gift from the Lord. It's something that the Lord brings. Uh, Because no matter how much they sought and perhaps no matter how much they got, some of them, there was still never the, the feeling and the experience of satisfaction. They never had their fill. It was never enough. But the fact that God says in Malachi, I will rebuke the devourer, implies that there was a devourer at work. Uh, There were ways in which the Lord was undermining their efforts. Uh, Why? Because they were were not being faithful in giving as they were supposed to. 
So it's just kind of life on the rat wheel, you know, just, just running and running and running and never getting anywhere. And so I think the service of the text is pretty straightforward. What the problem is that they were not giving, they were not being faithful in their finances, what the solution is uh, to simply bring in a full tithe, and, and what the, the promise is, that the Lord is going to bless them and provide for them. But before we think about contemporary application for, for Christians and how we should think about this text and tithe and the Lord's blessing financially, all, all these things, uh, are, does anyone have any questions? And it's fine if you don't, but does anyone have any questions just about kind of the, the surface of the text, the historical situation and how we're understanding it, uh, these few verses? No. Good? Okay, pretty simple. So, this passage clearly condemns the Israelites for their failure to tithe. So, are Christians today required, obligated to tithe like the Israelites? Are, are we condemned like the Israelites were if we fail to tithe? Why or why not? And so, there might be different opinions here. I just want to acknowledge that, and that's okay. We can come to different conclusions here, and that doesn't need to be a source of contention if, if there are different opinions. But I also think we should be, feel free to share what you think, and why you think that. Why would it have changed? Okay, so... You should still, yeah. Okay, so... Anyone think otherwise? Well, I think a few weeks ago you said that um, in the New Covenant, our whole life is to be that. Yeah, so. Like yeah, so. Uh, so, strictly speaking, tithing, as it's referred to in Malachi, is bound up in the Mosaic Covenant. It concerned the priests, it, it concerned temple worship, it concerned the sacrificial system. Uh, we don't have temple worship, we, we don't have Levitical priests, but most importantly, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant anymore. So, all of that has been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus came as the true temple of God who dwelt among his people. Uh, Jesus offered himself as a, the final and ultimate, the last sacrifice once and for all for sin, and he is our only priest. All that has been done away with. Moreover, I would highlight uh, that the New Testament speaks often about finances and how we relate to them, but we're, we're never quite told explicitly that we ought to be tithing in the sense of uh, the tithe in Israel, of course, meant just tenth. That's what it literally means in Hebrew. So in, in the sense of a tenth of all that you receive, all your income is to go back to the Lord. So, I would argue that tithing, as a commandment conceived of in the Old Covenant and conceived of in Malachi, is not still binding and in force, simply because we're not under the Old Covenant. So then, in light of that, that would be my position, how do we apply Malachi 3 to our lives as New Covenant Christians? What, what would it mean for us Financially, what, what could we discern and apply? Let's just hypothetically saying I am, if I am right. I believe that in the, uh, since Christ and the resurrection, we're now to bring our offerings still to the church, mm-hmm. but it's not a tithe. It's how much you feel that you should give. 
But a tithe is only like the beginning line. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? yeah. We can give more. Yeah. See where you're going to... Oh, I can't quote it directly, but we're supposed to give out of our abundance, mm-hmm. and we're supposed to take care of the widows and the poor. Mm-hmm. And so, I, 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 you know, I, I think um, she's all on my grind, but we're, we're supposed to give out of our abundance, right? And we're supposed to give... Um, I mean, it's, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, right? And so, so it, it really is, a, I think, a thing between you and the Lord, but to give as much as you can give. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and there's so many examples, you know, of the widow with the alabaster jar and, um, and a couple others that I'm drawing a blank off, but it's like even more than in abundance, you know? It's almost like they're in poverty. Yeah. By giving. Yeah. Uh, so let me just try to highlight, uh, uh, draw something from directly from the text. Um, you know, God says, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. There, there's a principle there. There's a principle that God has a rightful claim on the things that we possess. And for us not to render those to him actually constitutes Robbery, where we are stealing from God because God has a claim on it. Uh, and the, I would say, in the Old Testament, this is ex, you know, expressly articulated in terms of the tithe. But you know, what about, this is the harder question that, that you guys were already getting to, what about the, the New Testament? Uh, how does Jesus lay claim upon the lives of his followers? Our lives or living sacrifice. Yeah. I say it's, it's everything. <laughs> uh, this, is what, this is what I probably had referred to, what you were mentioning. Jesus said, therefore, if anyone does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. So you're not getting off the hook because the tithe isn't in place because now Jesus comes and he says, if you don't renounce all that you have, you, you cannot be my disciple. I, I don't want 10% of your budget. I want all of you, for all of that, all that you have and all that you are. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and render to God the things that are God's. Okay, so all that we have belongs to him. So, I mean, really, everything in the New Testament goes the opposite direction. We're not getting off the hook. Paul says, for me to live is Christ. All of my life is about one thing, him. His glory. To die is gain. So to be a faithful follower of Christ means that not 10% of your budget, but, but 100% of your budget is subject to the lordship of Christ. So it's not that you get 10% or the Lord gets 10% and you get the other 90%. Uh, it means it's all His and you are called to steward it. Does that mean that every dollar when Jesus says, renounce all that you have, does that mean that every single dollar must be given away? No, it doesn't mean that. In fact, I would argue that the Bible, it, you'd, you'd end up disobeying other commandments of Scripture if you did that often, especially if you have children. But you are responsible to steward every single dollar that the Lord gives without exception for His glory and for the good of others. And my conviction is that we'll be on the hook for everything that the Lord gives us, every dollar. Jesus said, I tell you, on the day of judgment, 
People will give an account for every careless word they speak. And by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. And I don't think it's a stretch to say that we will give an account for every careless dollar that we spent. And even that some people, by their, by their spending, they will be justified, and by their spending, they will be condemned. Think about the young rich ruler. What was the heart of his idolatry? It was his love of money. And what's going to stand against him and condemn him on that day when he says, all these I have kept from my youth. And the Lord's going to say, yeah, what about all this? What about this area of your life? And it will be his stewardship of his money that will stand to condemn him on that day. And this isn't to make us hyper fixated on money, but as the most wealthy culture with probably the most dispensable income in all of history we could use a little sobriety concerning how we use our money and the fact that the Lord does lay claim to it, that it's His, and we are going to be held accountable for how we use it. So we can at least discern these things from Malachi, that that God lays claim to our finances, that it matters to God. Remember, He framed this in terms of, you have forsaken me. You have turned aside from following me. Why? Because you weren't faithful in this area. And so I don't want to to leave people completely in in the dark about (laughs) how we should actually think about how much we should give. But just the reality is we're not given a percentage. And and the New Testament does talk about giving. And there's plenty of opportunity, the point is, for Paul to simply say, tithe, 10%, 10%, uh, and go from there. But we don't see that. But what we do see, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, our key chapters, is that we should give sacrificially, that we should give cheerfully, and that we should give in light of the gospel. I could mean a lot of things when I say there's several good answers to what that means, giving in light of the gospel. But does anyone have an idea of what I might mean? (laughs) What does it mean, or what might it mean, to give in light of the gospel. Uh, the fact that God gave us his own son, should we also be willing then to give whatever we have mm-hmm. uh, in the service of the gospel? Yeah. So, in, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, the, these chapters that are you know deal robustly with giving, Christian giving, Paul is exhorting the, the Corinthians to be generous with their money. And he says, um, and I don't have the verse here, I think it might be, oh, verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, if you want to read it yourself. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And so we're not thinking Christianly about giving if we're not thinking about it in light of Christ and the incarnation and the cross and thinking about what that Christ left the glory and the riches of heaven and entered into our poverty so that by his poverty we might become rich and that we might go to glory and live with with him and inherit the riches of his wealth and possession that, that we might rule and reign with him. And Paul says, let that be the foundation and the template for when you think about how to give to others, be, being generous and being sacrificial and, and not only sacrificial, but joyful in the midst of it, uh, because you're, you're honoring, glorifying, and you're reflecting Christ as you do it. 
Uh, so I would just say, as we, we think about giving, we should go before the Lord with the acknowledgement already that, Lord, everything I have is yours. You've entrusted it to me, and I want to honor you with it. I want my heart to reflect that I cherish the gospel. I cherish the church. I, I want your, you and your kingdom to be preeminent. And I want that to be displayed in the way that I use my money. I want to sacrificially love others as I have sacrificially been loved by Christ. You, you know, bring that before the Lord with that kind of disposition. And you say, Lord, like, what do you want me to do? How should I give? How should I spend? How should I save? I need wisdom. And in your word, you say, if anyone lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives generously. So, I don't, I don't think, of course, that we're going to get an audible voice and say, $500, you know, or you're not going to get a spreadsheet from heaven uh, about how you should give. But just as Proverbs says, acknowledge him in all of your ways and he will make your paths straight, uh, that, that he will guide and, and govern and, and show you how to walk in a way that honors him. And, and ultimately, that's what the Lord is after. Uh, he's more honored in our pursuit and our wrestling of, Lord, how can I glorify you with what you've given me than just a kind of mindless, you know, write the check, 10%, don't have to think about it, just, you know, that, that doesn't honor the Lord. But what does honor him is taking all that you have and saying, Lord, it's yours. I want to honor you with it. Show me. And maybe that, maybe that does mean 10%. And if it, if it is, that's not wrong. But maybe it means more. Who knows? Uh, but we should be willing to submit that to the Lord and say, it, it belongs to you, God. And I'm not primarily concerned about holding on to this. And like, like Steve said, the better question, the way that we should be framing it is not, you know, Lord, how much do I have to give? But when you look at your budget and say, okay, Lord, how much can I give? How much can I be generous with? How much can I, uh, you know, do good to others and, and help advance the gospel in distant places? Uh, that should be our attitude of, okay, I, I have a family. I need to take care of, provide for in the home and for my own needs. Okay, but in light of that, how, how much more can I give? We got a few more minutes. There's one last question I want to, to deal with. So Malachi 3, 10 to 12, God promises financial blessing or faithful giving. I'll just read it really quickly again. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Okay? Does that same promise apply to us? Can we, can we take that and say, all right, is that direct, indirect? How does that work? I would say it still applies. I mean, we have, we have God's blessing and mm-hmm. he wants us to prosper, but we, you know, we will be challenged. Mm-hmm. There's a balance. Anyone else? I think it does in the sense of that Psalm 1 talks about, but maybe not. Maybe we interpret it just for like a crass materialism, like I'm going to give and then I'm going to be wealthy, then I think we're missing. I think there's a 
perhaps a, a deeper impact, more real prosperity that he promises. Like, and someone, you know, the one who walks in the way of the Lord, who delights in the law, will be like a tree that prospers in its season and is flourishing and abounding, but it's not necessarily a promise of material prosperity. Yeah, so, so there, there's a little bit of tension here. Uh, as a disclaimer, whenever money is talked about in the Old Testament, typically what I would do and I'd recommend others to do is, is you run it through your, your covenant grid. Old covenant is earthly, physical, temporary. New covenant by nature is, is spiritual, it's eternal, and it's heavenly. And, and so typically you see Old Testament, you see blessings of wealth and prosperity. You run that through your grid and you, you see in the New Testament, the way that translate, translates is, we have an inheritance in Christ. We have riches in Christ that are far better than earthly money and wealth. Uh, there is a kind of prosperity and blessing that far exceeds uh, having a nice home and, and a lot in your bank account. So that, that would just be my typical recommendation as you encounter promises and blessings and curses like that in the Old Testament. So, as a principle of interpretation, I say, well, we can't just grab this in Malachi 3 and, and just bring it into the New Covenant. But practically, uh, and as a more proverbial matter of the Christian life, I'd say, this is true. Uh, and, and especially because, the reason I would feel very strongly about that is because one, similar promises are repeated in the New Testament. So, we're running out of time here, but let me just read this to you again. 2 Corinthians, this is uh, 9, 6, and then 10, 11. Paul says, The point of this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. And he goes on, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous, in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So, to be fair, like, like what Ben was saying, is it possible that you will be enriched in other ways other than material and financial blessing in response to financial giving? Yeah, I think that is that could be the case. But it's obvious, oh, I would say, and it's also obvious and would be a gross perversion of the promise if you think that this is a means of getting rich, like Ben was saying. Uh, if you think that, well, there's a promise here, so if, if I give, then like, I can get more out of it. Uh, and, and this is often construed you know, in health, wealth, prosperity. Like, give your, your plant your seed of you know, $100 and you're going to reap $1,000. You know, receive tenfold. Uh, that's, that's obviously a perversion of this promise. But, but it is true that there is a promise for those who are faithful with their finances, monetarily, in giving, that they will be blessed by God so that, and this is the key, so that they can continue on sowing with the seed that God blesses them with. You will be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way. So, to come back to the original question, given that we have the, the same kinds of promises in the New Testament, and then I would say also just from personal experience, anecdotal evidence, I would read Malachi 3.10, where God says, put me to the test. See if I won't open the w- windows of heaven and pour down from you blessing. I would encourage people to take God up on that promise, that challenge, 
Uh, C, just test God in this way. Where in scripture does God say, test me? But here he says, test me in this. See if I won't be faithful. And, and we have promises in the New Testament where Paul says, the one who sows bountifully is going to reap bountifully. And, and God is going to continue to supply and multiply your seed for sowing. And that's the key. As long as we're thinking in terms of, I'm, I'm honoring you with this, and, and I'm confident, I'm and believing that God is going to continue to provide for my needs. Why? So that I can continue to bless others and use it for the advancement of the kingdom and, and the glory of God. So I would say, if we're thinking in those kinds of categories, we should have lots of confidence when you give, that you can give above and beyond, trusting that the Lord is going to provide for you, that the Lord is going to take care of your needs, and then he's also going to bless you so that you can be a blessing. Uh, and, any questions before we, we finish or any comments before we close? I mean, oh. go ahead. I was just thinking of Ephesians 1 where he blesses us with all the spiritual blessings and then having places in Christ. Mm-hmm. That even that language in Malachi where he opened the doors of Torah. Mm-hmm. Really like, he's done that so beautifully for us mm-hmm. in Christ. That is just magnificent. This is a language. Yeah. Yeah. I think that really what it boils down to is our motivation for giving. If the only reason you're giving is so you'll get, that's not pure motivation. Yeah. And uh, we have a greater blessing in heaven. Mm-hmm. That's what we're really aiming for. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, would you agree that there is a, an element, a way that we can go too far? For I look back on myself when I was first married. Missionaries would come to town be like, Let's give them five hundred dollars, and then like then later that afternoon, my wife would be like, you know, can I buy some new shoes when they're getting old? And I'd be like, we don't have money for that. <laughs> um, and that was literally our like we, we felt this tension. Natalie felt this tension. Like, why is he so willing to give and yet he mm. won't give me anything? Yeah, Grace, Grace has no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wonder if I don't know if there's anyone else like that in this room, but if there can be like a place where our conscience might be misshapen or like you yeah. know, we also have to balance it with like you know care if anyone does not care for his own family especially yeah. then he's worse than a believer yeah yeah and, and so the the corrective that i haven't always heeded well what would be that we should be generous with the people nearest to us as well <laughs> uh that you know as you're thinking about finances you know be, try and be generous with the person on the other side of the globe while not being generous at all with the people under your own roof is not a, a great policy. Um, I just have a question. Would you would you say that in the context of giving, the, the, the majority of our giving, of course, should be as a whole in our life in different aspects, but to be to the local church? Yeah, so, yeah, I think it's a good, like, if people are like, I have no idea what to do, I would say, okay, start with 10%. Start with 10% at your local church uh, and, and then go from there. Like, not that it's incumbent and required, but given that it is a pattern that we see, and by principle, no, we don't have Levitical priests, but the Bible says that uh, those who are laboring in ministry should get their living by the ministry. So, so you should seek to support those who are ministering to you. And yeah, so they would start their local church, and then there might be other offerings and ways that the Lord puts it on your heart to, to give and be generous. Anything else?
All right, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for how you have blessed us, that you have richly provided for us. And Lord, we do thank you for the bounty that that we have here. Lord, help us to steward it well, to steward it for your glory, uh, to be generous people, uh, to be people whose minds and hearts and affections are are set on the things above and not on the things below. Uh, Lord, that we could, as Jesus said, make friends by our uh, worldly wealth so that when we go to heaven, we'll have people there to receive us, um, that our hearts and, and minds would be shaped by eternal priorities. Uh, and Lord, most of all, we thank you for the, the richest way that you've blessed us. As was pointed out that Christ came. Uh, you have given the, the greatest gift so that we might have uh, true riches. Uh, in, we've been blessed in Christ with adoption and uh, we've been redeemed and forgiven and sealed with the, the presence of the Spirit. Uh, all of these things are, are the, the richest and the greatest of our blessings and, and help us to treasure these. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your grace. Uh, help us to honor you in all that we do. In Jesus' name, amen.